The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And it's not clear why the Russian PBOSV sort of uh, ground forces air defense units are having such a hard time dealing with TB2s, although we can't tell how many they shot down yet. It's a one-sided picture. The Air Force, I mean, they, it's surprising that they're still operational, but the Russian Air Force hasn't seriously gone after them. Like, they've been striking Ukrainian air bases with cruise missiles and SRBMs. Which actually is another interesting lesson from this war, that what, what Russians are likely to go after in terms of critically important targets, what the accuracy is of some of their long-range precision-guided weapons, the Russian Air Force hadn't seriously gone after the Ukrainian Air Force and Ukrainian air bases to begin with, the way we probably would, right? We would start a conflict most likely with a mass airspace campaign, take out the enemy's air power, disintegrate their integrated air defense, suppress and destroy the air defense systems we could find, go after command and control, attain air superiority, and and then have a much freer opportunity to use the air domain in order to support the ground. I'm Lawfare Senior Editor Scott R. Anderson, and this is The Lawfare Podcast for March 11th, 2022. As the war in Ukraine grinds into its third week, conditions on the ground have grown increasingly brutal. While Ukrainian forces have proven remarkably successful at repelling the Russian advance so far, Russian forces have continued to make slow and steady progress into the country, with no clear resolution in sight. To get a sense of the state of the conflict and where it might be headed, I sat down with Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a leading analyst on the Ukraine conflict. We talked about what's gone wrong for Russia so far, how Western assistance is empowering the Ukrainians, and how both sides are likely to adapt as the conflict enters this next stage. It's the Lawfare Podcast for March 11th. Michael Kaufman on the state of the war in Ukraine. All right, Michael, I want to go back to the beginning of what has been now a more than two-week-long conflict. But before we do that, let's get a snapshot of the situation on the ground right now, which a lot of people listening to this are curious about. It's it's Thursday, March 10th, uh, you know, around 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Give us a sense about what the status of Ukrainian and Russian forces are in Ukraine, the status of the conflict, and and where we've seen it moving in these these past few days. Well, of course, look, we have to be frank that uh, it's difficult to see what's happening on the ground. There's there's the sort of pervasive fog of war, so to speak. But you know, I think if I was to summarize, I would say that Russian forces face a number of challenges and issues. They consistently take casualties, and they have 
big issues with forced employment and organization. That said, you know, they have continued to make advances and have progressed, if, if not in seizing territories, certainly moving up roads, towns, key junctions. Uh, Ukrainian forces are fighting back and they're counterattacking on a regular basis, sometimes uh, at night, sometimes during the day. It is a war that is seeing towns or territory or key positions trade hands. It's not a war that we could qualify really as one that's combined arms maneuver warfare, though increasingly you see Russians trying to arrange their forces in combined arms formations and employ them the way they're actually practiced and trained to doing that. Ukrainian forces have leveraged the urban terrain in particular. They've done a lot of ambushing of Russian convoys and of smaller groups or detachments of Russian forces. So you see a series of kind of picked skirmishes, battles playing out. On the whole, Russian forces have definitely not made the advances I think they'd hoped for operationally, but they are making steady progress. It's coming at substantial cost of manpower and material, though. So much of the conflict, the way at least I see it, remains contingent, right? We're, we're, we're probably much more towards the beginning of the war than we are towards the end, even though many folks are living it day by day, or, or if you're like me, tracking the conflict even hour by hour. So it may feel like it's already gone on for, for a much longer period of time. You mentioned this fog of war effect, which I think everyone who is struggling to understand what's happening on the ground in Ukraine is living through, although probably not with the level of granularity of the stakes that you and other analysts are living through it, let alone policymakers. What should we as outsiders from government without access to intelligence and other sources of information policymakers have, what should we be looking at to get a sense of the state of things on the ground? And perhaps most importantly, how should we be thinking about the things we do see? I think all of our Twitter feeds are full of demolished Russian tanks and daring raids on Russian forces and these really powerful videos. But I know both sides are engaged in a degree of, uh, you could call it information operations or you can call it marketing or spin, but uh, you know nobody's giving an unavarnished view of this conflict. So how should we be looking at it and what should we be looking towards? Sure, that's a great point. So look, the things that are presented on Twitter and social media, they are real, that is, those are events that happen, but they paint a very distorted perspective on the battlefield, right? I'm sorry, but Twitter and social media isn't real. Russia had largely ceded the information domain at the outset of this conflict, hoping to keep it secret. Ukraine has done a great job dominating it. And uh, so have been folks that, you know, supportive of Ukraine, like all of us are. But that, in some respects, also creates an echo chamber. Here's the reality. First of all, we don't actually know the state of Ukrainian forces. It could be good. It could be not good. We don't know what attrition or manpower losses they really suffered. Most of what we do get are these images of sort of destroyed Russian vehicles or, or abandoned vehicles being towed away. And of course, they're real. But you know, Russian soldiers aren't out there with cell phones taking TikTok videos of every single Ukrainian vehicle they killed. Right. So we're, we're getting a pretty one sided image of the battlefield. Then when we look at the actual map, we can see that slowly, but but the but surely Russian forces are making progress. They are in, trying to encircle cities. There are pitched battles taking place. So they are advancing in the, on the battlefield. And you, you can uh, take that for what it's worth. But there's clearly, you know, the, the perception of the war that I appreciate. But I also try to sort of caution people when when they look at this conflict not to walk away from this one-sided impression because it may give them fairly unrealistic expectations right about the actual course and trajectory of the conflict in terms of what should we be looking for 
Yeah, that's a very hard question, right? At, at a certain point, uh, wars like this, you just start getting inundated with daily images of attrition, uh, losses of equipment, some stories of territorial gains, losses, attacks, counterattacks. And another thing is that in war, official claims are not really good to go by, right? Typically, any parties to a conflict grossly exaggerate or overstate their successes and they grossly understate their losses right and sometimes you see official claims that to me are outlawed outright they're just not true there's no evidence to substantiate them that's not common that's actually fairly commonplace in any war so that's sort of challenge and then you have to look at what do you think are the actual military goals of the respective sides and what are their strategies and then what are their political goals and try to get some sense of whether or not you think one side's doing better in the war from that perspective, rather than you know going day by day looking at tanks being destroyed. Do we have a sense about what the political objective is for the Russians? You know, they have stated goals of what you can translate as essentially regime change, right? Changing the government, but is that? really the place where they will stop? Is it an intent to occupy large swaths of Ukraine, which seems to be problematic? Or is it to do something large and symbolic? A lot of the focus now, frankly, on both sides, Ukrainian and the Russian side, is on Kiev, uh, obviously capital, obviously historically very significant city. But there's also a lot of Ukraine to the west of Kiev that isn't really would be a, a whole different sort of venture for Russians to go on and try and occupy and control. You know, where where is the line? Where is the objective? Or is that something both sides are still either figuring out for themselves or not yet uh, laying on the table? So I think Russian political goals originally were to install a pro-Russian regime, and they likely hoped that Zelensky would flee or surrender. And of course, they, they were completely unrealistic, and I think a gross miscalculation, but be that what it may, I think now they are trying to play a game where they, they do still recognize Zelensky as legitimate, and that's because they, they actually hope to eventually be in a military position to get him to sign something uh, that amounts to you know, at least a, a degree of a capitulation, which is you know, recognition, I think, of Russia's annexation of Crimea, independence of Donbass, some sort of neutrality clause in Ukraine's constitution, maybe some other clauses uh, making impossible the basing of foreign forces, particularly NATO forces on Ukrainian territory. At least this is the sense I've gotten from some of the negotiations that supposedly are taking place. Well, my personal view so far, looking at what happened in Russia's strategy, is that from the standpoint of political ends, I'm not sure they're achievable. I don't know if they ever were, but I'm definitely skeptical now. I think that they're in some ways stuck, trickling in resources, putting in additional manpower material to resource was not likely to be a successful strategy where they will probably won't be able to achieve their political objectives. They can achieve military victories. And I've seen lots of wars where the you know the aggressor of the country involved can win battles and attain military victories, but ultimately can't attain their desired political ends. Uh, on the Ukrainian side, you know, their in some ways their strategy is to play for time and uh, trade space or territory to buy time and use it to both attrition Russian forces to the point that they eventually become exhausted, become combat ineffective, and also leverage that time to generate reserves, get more volunteers into the force, get more uh, weapons, arms, and supplies from the West, 
and, and actually build up the country's ability to resist. So that, that doesn't mean that Russia can't uh, inflict incredible levels of damage on Ukraine, and it doesn't mean that they can't you know, sort of pursue a plan B or plan C, which could involve prolonged occupation of, let's say, southern parts of the country in eastern regions, or it could involve even partition if they feel they can't get anything they want. I definitely don't want to make it sound as though Russia has no options, just I don't think they have any good ones, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I, I want to come and talk about Ukraine's strategy in this and how it intersects with the West, but let's start with Russia first, because you've already laid out there that Russia came into this with what are, uh, to paraphrase what you just said, unrealistic objectives, maybe an unrealistic sense of what this conflict was going to look like, at least in the early stages, maybe even extending now two weeks, a little more than two weeks later. How has Russia's perception of this conflict, expectations and strategy shifted over the last two plus weeks? And do we have a sense of the trajectory about where it may be headed? Sure. Well, the initial Russian operation, right, was very clearly designed as a, a sort of, to be honest, it is what they kind of call it, a special operation. I think many of us thought that that was just, you know, the way they were going to brand it to the public while launching a, you know, an invasion and a large scale military operation. But in practice, it turned out very quickly, at least for me, looking at the first 24 hours, that Putin really did hatch this plan in a fairly small circle of people, honestly believing that there wouldn't be much Ukrainian resistance, that they could quickly get forces into the Ukrainian capital, get Zelensky to surrender, and they could push troops into Ukraine, you know, running down roads and, and, and taking towns and sort of quickly isolating sectors. And, and I have a real war. So, so from the outset, the entire thing looked completely banal, right? They, they were trying to invade what outside of Russia is the second, is, the, is basically the largest country in Europe, right? Doing a full-scale invasion, but without the military operation, the preparation to do it. Plus, it's clear they lied to their troops as well. They pushed them to the border and only at the last minute told them that they were actually going into this war. And I think particularly junior officers received their orders very late into the game. And when they were thrown across the border, they were essentially told, look, you're not being sent to a war with a serious conventional military. You're going there to help Ukrainians liberate themselves. So imagine how these troops felt probably when they encountered the first checkpoint or the first Ukrainian ambush to find out that they were thrown psychologically, materially unprepared into a large war in Europe. Uh, and, and essentially somebody's betrayed by their leadership because the whole thing's been terribly organized. And so since then, obviously, they've made adjustments. You can tell. Several days into the war, I think it became clear to the Kremlin that, look, their assumptions were wrong. They were sort of looking at Ukraine still the way they were looking at it before 2014. And what they were trying to do, as crazy as it sounds, I think, to, to the objective onlooker, is they, they were trying to um, do a much larger version of the operation they conducted in 2014 and 2015. And I even thought that they could keep it secret from the Russian public. Uh, the adjustment now is, of course, to a much larger combined arms operation. They've had a lot of difficulty with that for all sorts of reasons, uh, starting from the fact that the initial preparations and organization were, were, were shambolic to the fact that the Russian military actually has not tried anything like this before since they reformed and built up the Russian military. Like they haven't done anything on the scale in decades and, and have, I think, precious little experience of, of attempting a war of this kind uh after a period of military reform modernization and now they're of course discovering all the deep problems within the military that they probably have not seen either in uh exercises which often are staged preset events right they're scripted 
if that makes sense. And limited cases of forced employment, like the aerospace campaign in Syria, right? That doesn't actually tell you what your force would look like if you had to put together 120 battalion tactical groups and invade a large country with a very serious conventional military. So now, now they're stuck basically adjusting and improvising and still a lot of their capabilities are sitting on the sidelines. They are parts of the force employment started pretty rationally and, and you see them trying to uh, cobble this effort together now, but it just from an onlooker, obviously it looks pretty bad and, and you see a lot of dysfunction in the Russian military in the last two weeks. But that's a very critical view. It's not to say that I'm sure everything's gone well for the Ukrainian side either. So it has been pretty amazing to see through this admittedly potentially distorted or biased lens of Twitter and other social media sources, some of the sites we've seen about the Russian army, whether it is trucks running out of fuel on the side of the road being taken up by Ukrainians and you know taken as for their own control, truck tires collapsing, trucks driving on flat tires across Ukrainian terrain, all Russian trucks. What have we learned from this conflict about Russia's conven- actual conventional military capabilities that we might not have known or known confidently before? And does that change our calculus of Russian power beyond the scope of Ukraine? Yeah, good questions. Well, first, you know, we have to ask ourselves, how, how are we doing the learning? Because I definitely see a lot of people online broadly generalizing from anecdotal pictures and images they receive of the Russian military. That's not really the way to do it. And I, I see a lot of people trying to pivot into the space, right, without a lot of experience or, or expertise either on the, the Russian military or the region and, and giving us sort of broad takeaways based on collapsed uh, uh, truck, truck tire sidewalls as to how this explains the war. And I, and I caution people, I appreciate that everybody's got an interesting piece of the puzzle to contribute, but I, I very much caution people with early takes of the war because you're working off of incomplete information and you're, you're seeing anecdotal evidence of problems. I kind of, in some extent, wonder what some of our military campaigns would look like if we were watching daily TikTok footage of all of our worst moments during the course of those wars, particularly some of the ones I knew and, and some of the ones I experienced when, when I was in government. It's just just the thought I had actually the other day in a conversation where I thought, I wonder, we'd probably look good, but I wonder if everything would look nearly as good as we remember it if there was somebody TikTok videotaping and posting online every single every single moment of, of that war. So looking at the Russian military, to me, the first takeaway is definitely on the ground forces, that they have a lot of issues that we could not have seen. Now, the assessments we had earlier, they're based on something. It's very hard to, to tell until a military is tested like this. I'll tell you why. First, military analysis has to be done in the context. You can't measure military power in abstract the way you would count somebody's money, okay? And the military context is a scenario and it's an interaction between the parties involved, in this case, Russia and Ukraine. And it's very hard to see how any country's military capability is gonna translate into a large-scale war like this. In the same way, if you were looking at China, you can do all the military analysis you want but until you've seen them fight. In, in a major war, it's, you know, a lot of your estimates might go out the window very quickly. The second part is that, you know, clearly see that on the ground force side, they have big issues with repair and maintenance rather than modernization. And they have also big issues with morale, which are to be expected from the structure of the operation, right? That, that the way the entire thing has been put together, you're likely gonna have fairly troop morale. So you see vehicles being abandoned 
by small-scale desertion. We see units probably deserting and abandoning some of their vehicles. In general, when they started the operation off, there are things about the Russian military that I saw that were very predictable. I'll give you for example. It's a military based around the strategic concept of active defense, right? That's kind of the, the motto or brand of Russian military strategy. We've written about it quite a bit in my organization, CNA. Okay, the military mostly trains and organizes for a high-end fight against NATO in a regional or large-scale war. And as silly as this may sound, looking at their employment here in this particular conflict, you definitely see the initial force organization preparation being rather different than how the Russian military tends to train and fight. But aspects of it are very telling because this is a military that prepares for maneuver defense, let's say, for ground forces. And it's not set up in terms of manpower and logistics for a large strategic ground defensive. And this is not a surprise to military analysts, people who follow the Russian military. It's an ammunition-hungry military. Its logistics are quite constrained. And as a function of military strategy, they didn't build themselves out to be able to successfully invade, you know, the largest country in Europe. That's, so, so no surprise, the rate of advance in the first week is actually quite high. In the south at certain points, it's 200 kilometers and beyond. And none of the logistics can keep up. And they're being ambushed as well. They're losing fuel and ammo and food convoys. And they clearly, you know, early on, it's obvious they don't know much about convoy escort. Um, they also don't have much experience in urban combat. That's another case in point. But that's not surprising whatsoever. If you don't train for a particular mission and you show up in, that, in the fight, you're not going to begin the fight. So now they're learning the hard way, the way many other militaries have learned in the past, including the Russian military and the Soviet military that preceded them, the, the viciousness of urban warfare. Okay, so what, what can we take away from this? Look, first, this is obviously, uh, on the whole, pretty terrible performance. And there are reasons for that. I think that military strategy and the operational concept initially are in part deterministic, but there are also big issues in the Russian military that are now coming to the fore that were difficult to tell early on. Second, we should have a debate to what extent this military performance is really significant for other scenarios that are more meaningful to us. Like, what does this tell us about potential high-end fight with Russia? Let's say over the Baltics. Well, most of the key things in that fight are things like integrated air defense, air power, use of long-range standoff precision guided weapons. The, you know, the core of planning and thinking about the Russian military is for the United States has never been how to win a fight with a T-80U tank, if that makes sense, right? That's not that's not what we're looking at. And that those kind of scenarios pose a very different logistical challenge, I think, for the Russian military in some ways than this invasion of Ukraine. But that's the bail. Next point. We are definitely going to have a sharp pendulum swing because communities often don't do nuance well. So I know that if I spent a long time after 2014 saying that the Russian military is not 12 feet tall, and I challenged a lot of these fait accompli scenarios that we were dealing with for years. I don't know if you're familiar with some of my writing on that subject more on the rocks, but I was deeply skeptical of some of the scenarios and, and the way Russian military, at least political objectives, were represented in them. After this war, I'm going to be spending a lot of time explaining that the Russian military is not four feet tall either. And that's going to be the, the other extreme that the pendulum swings. And the truth is in the middle, as I think Bismarck used to say, that Russia is never as strong nor as weak as she looks. Uh, the truth is somewhere in the middle between those. And I'm worried that we're, we're going to go from overestimating Russian military power in terms of capability, how the force can actually employ itself, confidence of leadership and the like, to now grossly underestimating them and saying, you know, Russia's a paper tiger. I, I can already imagine a lot of people in defense getting ready to say that. 
But uh, a lot of extra capabilities that are particularly meaningful to the United States, we've not seen used or not seen used in a way that we might expect them to be used in, in some of our thinking uh, about uh, potential sort of NATO-Russia military contingency. And is there a reason for that? Is there concern about revealing capabilities in a conflict where it may not be strictly required? Is there is it simply a matter that they're very expensive? Or is it just maybe a feedback into that unrealistic expectation to the conflict? How do we attribute that, the fact that they're not using these capabilities they seem to have? Sure. So early on, they sat on the sidelines and looked very clearly because they actually didn't, they didn't expect to have a sustained military conflict. And they had pretty strict rules of engagement when they started the war. They essentially, they believed they were going to roll the Ukrainians. That's what they thought. They're going to roll Ukraine, not have a real fight. Early use of air power was very minor sporadic, some attack, ground attack missions by Russian aircraft and not much else. No real seed and deed campaign, fighting for local pockets of, let's say, air superiority. Now, since then, Russian Air Force has been more active, and Russian combat helicopters have also been a lot more active. They are paying the price for not conducting early on a seed and deed campaign. And also, incidentally, they're not good at that mission. Everybody knew that. The Russian Air Force just historically is not great at that particular mission. So um, it, those parts of it aren't surprising. We have interesting debates or hypothesis to why parts of the Air Force have either sat on the sidelines completely, because they have hundreds of aircraft, right? And they're using very few of them. Or let's say why they're only using unguided munitions. We know they have some PGMs that they could use. My theory was maybe they're holding them in reserve. Why? First, it's clear that part of the Russian deployment is still concerned or, or at least worried about the prospect of a NATO intervention, that this could involve NATO, this could be a high-end war. And there's a fair chance that part of the arsenal, more expensive parts of the arsenal, are being held in reserve by that force. If I, of this point makes sense. Some people think that they're, maybe they're out of PGMs or maybe their Air Force just can't do complex air operations. And, and my basic view is the jury's still out. Two weeks into a war is a little early to make uh, big intellectual leaps. I think we should hold off and give it a bit more time because the picture is pretty incomplete. On you know, certain aspects of, of uh, the force itself, well, I mean, I've only seen this past week them really trying to organize their forces into battalion tactical groups. Now they're using firepower in terms of artillery much more. You know, Russian ground force, for example, is, is a very artillery-heavy army. It's an artillery-focused army in the way it operates. And the first part of the war, basically the first week, these preciously little of it, a lot of the things that they have, let's say electronic warfare, barely seen. I mean, Ukrainians actually have a poster out there, MOD, asking citizens to report sightings of any Russian electronic warfare vehicles. I think I've seen one or two, you know, sort of rolling around somewhere. But they deployed a lot of EW capabilities in theater, and we're not seeing them used. And we actually don't know where they are, right? So, well, and we have debates about why that is. Same thing with um, remotely operated systems. They have a ton. We've only seen them used recently. We're not seeing them employ TTPs or things like recon strike, recon fire contours. You know, they have various tactical means of ISR that they could use to do recon, to do fires. And it's as though... This military is not doing much of what you saw doing the exercises, but more importantly, it's not doing things we see them do in other wars like Syria or actually in the war in Ukraine. Because the capabilities they've used since 2015 in the sustained fighting in Ukraine, we're, we're not even seeing those. So question marks remain. Now, I'm sorry for, that my answers are incomplete or maybe unsatisfactory, but it's the best I can do. I'm actually much, much happier saying that there's certain things we don't know. We don't know the reason for that yet. 
rather than saying just because we don't see Russian EW employed, they don't have any EW or none of it works. No, I think that's a very healthy way of framing what we know, what we don't know. Feeding into that question, a a factoid that has come out, I think, in primarily U.S. Defense Department briefings, I think it's at least the primary place I've seen in the last 24 or 48 hours or even a little earlier than that, is that we haven't seen any signs that Russia is taking any steps to send any additional forces or efforts to this particular battlefield, even though the forces they had array, the really substantial forces a raid on the border are closing in on 100% deployed. You know, some people have said, well, maybe that's because they've hit the limits where they're willing to spend or the war's too unpopular or, you know, they've kind of spent their their fuel and that's not quite where they're there. But it sounds like that probably is not a healthy assumption. They have a lot of capabilities they haven't deployed that are already there in place. We don't know why they haven't deployed them, but they have lots of room to escalate up the effort level not escalate in the conventional sense, but move up the effort level, work harder without having to move a much more bunch more capabilities in place. Is that right? Or is, should we be reading something more out of the, the fact that Russia hasn't moved to putting additional capabilities into this fight? Mm, so I, I don't want to get into debate with Pentagon talking points because I don't know where they come from and it wasn't necessarily meant by them. What I will say is that I've seen clear evidence that the Russian military is moving more forces to the theater from other parts of Russia. They have the ability to generate more forces. They have the ability to mobilize folks into reserve units as well. And there is half far more equipment than they initially deployed into this fight. I'm not saying those forces will be better than what's in there now. They might well be worse, but I am seeing movement of additional forces near Ukraine's borders. Now, they also have the ability to use air power and various parts of combat aviation much more than they have been. Why they're not doing that is, you know, a great, great subject for debate. We could assume that uh, first and foremost, the logistics issues that they have right now are more than enough of a problem without trying to field additional forces, right? That's issue one. Second, they're probably going to try to replace, reorganize some of the units that have been exhausted and attrition in this fight. I've already seen a number that took very heavy casualties and lost too much material. They'll need to replace them and reorganize. Third, I think that the Russian Air Force is, is aware of the problems they have uh, dealing with Ukrainian air defense and are trying to use themselves more cautiously and sparingly just because they don't want to lose too many aircraft. They could pay that butcher's bill, but for whatever reason, it looks like they're they're trying to conduct strikes that support Russian operations in specific areas, but not actually trying to go out after Ukrainian air defense or air power at large. On the forces currently in the fight, you know, it it's hard to say if it's enough. I mean, urban warfare consumes armies. So, for example, I see that they probably have forces to encircle the Ukrainian capital. I'm not sure they have the military power to take it, but I think they probably will try. In general, my, my personal guess, just the best guess looking at this, very incomplete information, is that at the rate of attrition they're suffering, they are probably going to need an operational pause within the coming several weeks. And, uh, and then the war might move into a slightly different phase, but I think, I think it's going to be hard for them to sustain it. Uh, on the other hand, it's not clear how well Ukraine, Ukrainian force can sustain this because the Picture and state of Ukrainian military is a big unknown. They have high morale and they have very strong resolve and they're doing well 
leveraging the terrain they have for a defensive fight, but you don't know what the actual state is of, of the Ukrainian military. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, let's shift to that, actually. And I, and I want to start with the area that we were just talking about on the Russian side, which is this air power question. Ukrainians have kept against the expectations, at least that I've seen from most people uh, going into this conflict, kept significant air capabilities, kept air defense separate from additional their own air capabilities. We, of course, all know about you know the ghost of Kiev and these sort of legendary figures and operations that have kind of popped up, which, again, we have to look at through this, this potential lens of information operations. But more fundamentally, it does seem like Ukraine has air capability. How significant is that actually? Is it more an interesting note that they've been able to preserve us, but they're limited in their ability to actually deploy it effectively? Or is it actually a real decision maker? And I guess more importantly, how sustainable is it if Russia really does buckle down and say, no, air defense is really what we want to shut down, uh, or aerial operations on the Ukrainians is what we want to shut down? How, how meaningful a part of the conflict has that been? Well... The manpad side of it is, you know, basically a saturated battlefield manpads. And you got Russian air power having to choose between dealing with medium range radar guy of SAMs that they haven't worked too hard to suppress. Although they are firing anti-radiation missiles. You see cage 31 ps found left and right. So they are trying to do it. I think, I think Russian air operations are a bit more complex than, than they look at first blush. And they are taking out Ukrainian SAMs. I do see probably a daily role of Ukrainian radar guided SAM systems at least being taken out, maybe individually, but eventually that'll add up, that attrition. But, you know, the choice air power usually has to make is between uh, being vulnerable to something like medium range uh, radar guided SAM system or flying in low altitude and being vulnerable to, you know, the hundreds of man pads that are out there in the battle space in which they're operating. And so, that's why you see quite a few aircraft being shot down. Over time, I do think that the Russian Air Force is going to steadily whittle away Ukrainian air defense capability. Ukrainian air power, I mean, yes, they're still flying, but but there's always also the question to what effect. I think the main effect that you've seen is from TV2 drones. And it's not clear why the Russian PVOSV sort of uh, ground forces air defense units are having such a hard time dealing with TB2s, although we can't tell how many they shot down again. It's a one-sided picture. 
Ukrainian Air Force, I mean, they, it's surprising that they're still operational, but the Russian Air Force hasn't seriously got after them. Like, they've been striking Ukrainian air bases with cruise missiles and SRBMs. Which actually is another interesting lesson from this war, that what, what Russians are likely to go after in terms of critically important targets, what the accuracy is of some of their long-range precision-guided weapons. But the Russian Air Force hadn't seriously gone after the Ukrainian Air Force or Ukrainian air bases to begin with, the way we probably would, right? We would start a conflict most likely with a mass airspace campaign, take out the enemy's air power, disintegrate their integrated air defense, suppress and destroy the air defense systems we could find, go after command and control, attain air superiority, and, and then have a much freer opportunity to use the air domain in order to support the ground. Why hasn't Russia take that approach? It's just not their, the way they thought about this campaign. Is that a strategic direction they're likely to move in in the future if thing, particularly if things begin to grind to, the halt, to a halt on the ground more? I mean, the first answer is because it's not the U.S. military. I've had this question asked before, right? It's like, why is Russia doing the thing that we would do? Like, because they're not you. That's, that's the first one. It's the same point where someone said, well, they haven't taken that many major cities. Yeah, obviously was like, a key point of their campaign was not to take major cities, just to go around major cities, not to get sucked into the fighting in those cities, and try to isolate and envelop Ukrainian forces. The initial operational design looked like two pincers, and they're still largely sticking to that. Two, basically a pincer movement to the Ukrainian capital, Kiev in the north, and a much larger one from the south and northeast to envelop the bulk of Ukrainian forces and try to avoid the fighting in, in the big cities because they don't have the forces for that and are dragging down. So on the air campaign side, why not doing that? Oh, a host of reasons. Don't want to lose all the aircraft involved in a campaign like that, especially since they don't have many of the capabilities that we might have to effectively prosecute, right? Russia's a, a ground force heavy military as opposed to an expeditionary airspace power like the United States. Most of their fires and strikes are actually in the ground force, right? Whereas a lot of our firepower is actually in, in, the, in, the, in the air force and what air power brings to the battlefield. Believing that they could get by with pushing local air superiority and not having to engage SAMs in other parts of the country because they don't actually intend to advance to those parts of the country. So maybe why fight SAMs that you don't need to? Or believing that Ukrainian air power could easily be taken out with precision strikes because this is, the, this is really the first campaign where they've done significant numbers of precision strikes. I think as of yesterday, they fired 710 different types of missiles into Ukraine, cruise, tactical, quasi-ballistic missiles and the like, you know, Alcoms, some Slickums, and probably figured out that guess what? It takes a lot more missiles to, to hit that many air bases and that, that much critical critical infrastructure or that their missiles are not as accurate as they thought they, they were and that it would, it would take them quite a bit more. So I'm sure they're learning a lot from this campaign, which kind of leads to this other point that is, you know, how, should, how much should we balance what we've seen of Russian performance versus the way they're likely to adjust following what they have seen of their own performance in this war, because they're definitely not going to keep things the same. I, I suspect that the problems I've seen have certainly made an impression on me, and I suspect they probably will make an impression on them. Well, let's go back to the Ukrainian side, because we've got a bunch of assistance that obviously the United States, NATO allies and other countries have been channeling into Ukraine and to the Ukrainian government. We have everything ranging from MiG fighter jets that are stuck in a kind of political bureaucratic quagmire, but may or may not find their way from Poland, perhaps via Ramstein Air Base in the United States and Germany, perhaps not, to Ukraine. Eventually, it's a possibility, at least. We, of course, see huge numbers of 
javelins and other sorts of, uh, you know, anti-armor weapons, anti-air weapons, other things coming in, and of course, all sorts of conventional arms. Where do all these forms of assistance actually fit into the Ukrainian tactics here? What's most important and what's least important? Are some getting more disproportionate attention than is actually warranted, given how they fit into the Ukrainian strategic picture? I mean, I think the tactical capabilities we provided him have been really significant. Javelins and laws, various types of man pads that we funneled in there, all sorts of anti-tank systems, body armor, so those basic things that equip kind of the individual warfighter, logistical elements. I actually think Ukraine is a phenomenal success story of foreign external defense. So, and, and it's amazing the, the kind of capabilities you can provide a country on very short notice if you really think they're going to be invaded, right? As opposed to the the amount of paperwork you might have to shuffle through to transfer defense capabilities during during any normal time. And, and it actually made a difference. I think it's made a tremendous difference, especially given the way they're fighting. I also think here's the other big part of the story here. Wow, wow, it's amazing how well a country with the right amount of resolve can fight if they don't waste money and you don't waste money giving them fancy high-end capabilities that are kind of showpieces but aren't very useful and would have been pretty easily taken out by an adversary in the initial part of the fight. So if they don't buy things, they don't they don't misspend their money and they focus on some of the right things, or at least you do in terms of what you're providing them, it can have a real meaningful effect. I think that there's parts of the conversation definitely that I'm puzzled by, like the entire MiG-29 business. The thing we should be talking about is Who's got, you know, uh, OSAs or Buck M1 still left on their arsenal amongst NATO allies and partners who can transfer them to Ukraine? Ukraine's doing a pretty good job on the air defense, but they need more systems of that type. Why why talk about MiG-29s? doesn't make much sense to me. Who's going to fly them? Where are they going to fly them for? And what are they going to do in a heavily air-denied environment where a lot of nothing's getting shot down faster than uh, legacy fourth-gen Soviet aircraft in this fight. So that's to me, that's not the, the right thing to try to talk about transferring. And also on the you know other side of the equation, the way I'm falling to the let's give them something very advanced that takes forever to train on. They probably can't maintain. It's too expensive to maintain and rearm. And it can't be integrated into anything else they have, but would be really shiny and would take up a lot of time and money. You know, there's always conversations like that that emerge. And I think thankfully we haven't fallen into that trap. So the other big form of assistance we have been seeing in the news, lots of talk about among politicians, among commentators, is some version of a no-fly zone, whether it is you know, some sort of humanitarian effort to clear ways for uh, refugee flows to to Poland and places west, or uh, an actual, you know, no-fly zone basically trying to control airspace, um, which, as you note, it is, has not actually been like a major premium or a major focus of Russia thus far. Does either version, any version of this fit into strategic picture in a meaningful way? Obviously, there's a major risk of escalation. Um, but is it really this conversation missing the point about what, where the war is being fought and how the war is being fought? Or, or is there actually a strategic uh, way they fit into the picture? I mean, are you asking specifically about the prospect of a no-fly zone enforced by NATO? Yeah, I mean, well, this is the proposal that we hear people talking about. I think people have politically ruled it out for a variety of reasons, yeah. uh, you know. But I'm curious as to whether, you know, if in a world where it's a, weren't a political impossibility, would it even make strategic sense? Like, how big of strategic difference would something like that actually make? 
given that, you know, control of the air actually hasn't been as big, doesn't seem like it's been as big a focus for the Russians strategically, uh, or really the the big area of contention thus far. Although maybe I miss maybe I miss miss uh, framing the question that way. No, I think you framed it right. So I think practically, I don't think it would make that much of a difference. I think most of what we see in terms of Russian fires are land based fires, and air power has played an increasing role, but not especially significant one. I think that where you're practically potentially could implement a no fly zone is probably in Western Ukraine which is a part of Ukraine that's actually not seeing airstrikes. And, and in other parts of Ukraine, most of the fighting is, I'm not really sure how you're going to implement the no-fly zone there. Beyond that, look, I'll I'll just say this, that I'm not sure folks really appreciate and understand what, what the implications of an enforceable no-fly zone are, because what they're basically saying is that they would be willing to shoot down Russian aircraft. You'd have to fire first when you're the one enforcing the no-fly zone. And all the consequences and escalation risks that come for that in exchange for pretty few, I think, personally, practical benefits. But let's put those aside. I understand they need to do something or to do anything and everything we can to help Ukraine. And we have some of these, I think, debates back over Syria as well. And we, we came to a similar conclusion over Syria that the no-fly zone, for a whole host of reasons, was maybe too risky, too dangerous, or not a practical solution to the devastation in, in that war. And I'm not sure why people are raising this again. Well, that's not fair. I think I know why they're raising it again in, in this uh, scenario. Like, I understand where it's coming from. I understand the place that it's coming from, uh, the need to do something. But I don't, I, I don't think that this is a good idea. I'll be perfectly honest. I think it's an incredibly dangerous idea, too. And, and especially from what I've seen of Russian decision-making in the past year, I'm I'm wary of, of the escalation dynamics. So the other area where we have seen, or at least seem to see, again, through this, this foggy lens that we see all this through, an area of escalation has been in Russian tolerance for targeting civilians. You mentioned that early in the conflict, they came in with pretty strict rules of engagement, perhaps expecting to kind of just roll into the country without facing major opposition. That seems to have changed, at least to a to an outside observer. Although I won't welcome correction on that. Of course, we're seeing now footage of uh, the bombing of maternity hospital. Most recently, uh, there was a children's hospital the other day, and a separate incident, as I recall. Lots of apartment complexes, lots of seemingly clearly civilian areas. Again, footage being put out there by the Ukrainian forces or people who sympathize with the Ukrainian forces. So we do have to take a little bit of a grain of salt there. But there does seem to be at least some reality behind. At least that seems to be the impression of. Department of Defense, the policy folks, other folks who presumably have other channels of information available to them. Is that a strategic shift? Is it just a sign that the calculus has changed for the Russian forces in terms of uh, their military necessity at this point? Is it a conscious effort to you know, psychologically affect the Ukrainian people and resistance, some combination of all of those? And is it where is it headed? Is it going to get too much worse than this and much worse than this in the days and weeks to come? Or uh, are there certain limits to how far Russia can go in that direction? Well, there's two parts to this. First, it was very clear that within a few days, they would rapidly change the nature of their operation, the rules of engagement, and they would start using heavy fires and they'd start using strike systems because the Russian military ultimately depends on that. That's how it operates. It has a lot of area effects weapons. It is not a military that's as big into precision. And I, I have written with early on to 
in those conflicts that look, the, the Russian military is going to revert to the mean very fast as they get frustrated and they they get a bloody nose on this conflict. You're going to see artillery and the MLRS and all these other capabilities come out and they're going to fire them into urban areas in particular because for, as forces start uh, getting bogged down and get savaged in urban combat, they'll start using firepower and to some extent, more limited extent, air power to start leveling entire blocks in an effort to entrench themselves on the city and make progress. I'm not surprised by that because I've seen it before. I've seen it before in other wars. So I said that, you know, that this advance towards Kiev is giving me really bad 1999 Grozny vibes in, in terms of what we could be looking at. Uh, so part of that is, hey, this is how the Russian military actually operates. It uses fires decisively and, and oftentimes indiscriminately and then exploits and maneuver. But other parts of it, as you can see in cities like Kharkiv, for example, they are shelling the city and they are shelling the city in part to get the civilian population to flee. And I think this is, this is my suspicion. I'm not going to sort of say it without caveats to show other cities in Ukraine when Russian forces and approach them that they should surrender or they're going to face destruction by Russian artillery and rocket systems. And so this is kind of a, a brutal coercive campaign in part because they don't have the forces to fight for these cities. They want to encircle the city and they want to be able to keep moving, right? As long as Ukrainian defenders are there, as long as substantial civilian population there, it poses a challenge for them, right? And I think that's why they're barraging some of these cities, some of these urban areas in an effort to get them to capitulate and also to clear out as much of the city as they can to get the civilian population to leave. I've seen this in a couple of, definitely in a couple of areas. So we're coming up on time. So I want to put one last question to you um, looking forward a little bit, which is that Right now, there doesn't really seem to be any clear off-ramps or any clear momentum towards anything other than continued engagement by both sides. You know, Ukrainians don't show a lot of inclination to back down. They're high morale. They're having unexpected success on the battlefield. The Russians also, despite setbacks, uh, you know, seem to be committing more effort, moving more folks into the field, deploying more capabilities, like you said, reverting to the mean in terms of some of the types of tactics and things that they have yet to kind of pull out. They're beginning to bring out, you know, despite potential consequences. Where does that momentum flow? What is it we should be looking forward to to say, well, here's a moment where one side or the other is going to have to begin to think a little bit about this war, where one might encounter some costs that become something like a natural point where where it becomes more costly. You One possibility might be, you know, the fall of Kiev, but we mentioned that that's seems like that might be uh, a very long ways off at this point because it's going to be a difficult effort on the Russian side. You mentioned this operational pause that's going to hit in a few weeks. Maybe that's a natural moment where this momentum towards further conflict comes up. But looking forward, you know, what do we see as the incentive structures and the timeline moving forward for these parties? Is there a point at which they're going to start feeling more pressure in the military capabilities side to move towards some sort of resolution other than continued conflict? Or is that really entirely dependent on the political side, maybe the economic sphere that's being applied very aggressively against Russia? Those other factors um, that are a little bit removed from the battlefield, but obviously set the outer conditions on which the military operates. First, 
I, I don't think the economic factors are going to be the significant ones. If anything, Russia received all the sanctions that it expected and far more. And so now it's just really not clear what the disincentive is for them. There's not much more you can threaten them with in terms of sanctions, right? In some ways, now they have far less to lose. And the political system over there, the regime is now in a position where, given the strategic impact of the sanctions, if they also lose this war in a humiliating way, it's probably going to mean regime change in Russia. In fact, it could mean that now either way. So now they don't have, they don't actually don't have much opportunities to back down. The war itself, I don't know how it's going to unfold. Everything's contingent war. So it could be that Russian force become combat effective in a couple of weeks. Dania sees fire and operational pause, then the war moves on a different phase. Or it could be quite different. It could be that actually a number of Ukrainian cities are encircled in the coming weeks. And Ukrainian forces find themselves in a really dire situation. So this is a negotiation that has to take place between Putin and Zelensky at the end of the day. So I don't know what else to say on that subject, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> it's, I don't see right now strong prospects for political settlement, right? The, the war is going to play itself out. And I don't see necessarily why the Ukrainians, given how well they appear to be doing, should in any way compromise or capitulate at this point. I'm not sure what will incentivize them to do that. But, yeah, alternatively, Russia could sustain this conflict in a different phase where it ends up holding at least parts of Ukraine, and then it has to face uh, an enduring partisan or movement or maybe an insurgency. So long term, I'm, I, I'm quite dour on the proposition that Russia can achieve its political objectives in this war. And I'm also increasingly dour on the sustainability of the regime there, too, given what I've seen in the last two weeks. Well, that is a heavy note to end it on, um, and there's going to be a lot more to discuss moving forward. But for now, I think our time is up. Michael Coffin, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on your program. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you may have found it. And look out for Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Also, don't miss our written work at www.lawfareblog.com and be sure to get your Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. This podcast was edited by Jen Patcha Howell, and our audio engineer was Hamza Shatu of Go Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.